Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Mad Mamluks. I'm Mahi and I'm joined by my co-host Ismail Royer. Yeah, you heard that right. Ismail Royer, as some of you may know, is uh, one of our most popular guests in the Mad Mamluks and he has joined our team as a co-host and he'll be doing a lot of shows out of the uh, Virginia, Maryland, D.C. area. Um, but we're bringing him on for his first show as a co-host. So first of all, Ismail, uh, Jazakallah khair for coming on the team. Uh, pleasure to have you. Well, yeah, come on. I'm very happy to be here. Alhamdulillah. You know, so looking forward to, to work with Ismail uh, a, a lot more closely going forward. But our guest today um, is Imam Shadid Muhammad. Imam Shadid is a student of knowledge uh, who graduated from the Islamic University of Medina uh, from the Faculty of Hadith. And Imam Shadid, you currently reside in uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, right? Is that Would you consider that your hometown? No, I actually live in uh, Delaware. I'm a square from Delaware, man. Oh, Delaware. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. No, um, the distance between Delaware and Philadelphia is about 30 minutes. Okay. So um, I, I, I spend a lot of time, you know, um, in Philly, but I, I don't live from, I don't live in Philly. Are you originally from Philly? I, I, I know you were born in New Jersey. Oh, man, blasphemy. No, man, I'm from <laughs> New Jersey, man. I'm from East Orange, New Jersey, man. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, well, talk to us a little bit about your background. Uh, were you born into Islam, or did you convert um, later in life? Uh, I converted to Islam when I was 20 years old. Um, I actually converted to Islam in prison. Um, I talked to, uh, I was actually on the Dean show with Eddie a couple of years ago. Um, so if you look on uh, the Dean show's archive, you can actually see the interview that I did with him uh, about how I converted to Islam. And um, I was uh, actually 20 years old, um, serving a 10-year sentence in prison. Um, and I was, I was kind of, you know, I, I had friends that were Muslim people that were, you know, kind of one foot in the dunya, one foot in Islam. So, you know, I, I had, you know, like a pre a prior introduction to Islam before arriving in prison. Um, it was just a matter of me, you know, just you know, taking the time out of my life and, you know, just actually confronting some of my own demons. You know, and prison is usually the place that, you know, people, you know, take the time out to confront their demons, you know. Sheikh, if you don't mind me asking, you might <clears throat> you might have mentioned it in the podcast, but were were you in the federal uh, prison system or state? No, this State, 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 uh, state of New Jersey. I was actually in Garden State uh, Youth Correctional Facility, which is, you know, to everybody in the prison system is known as Yardsville. Um, this is in like uh, close to like where Great Adventures is in Jersey, like Exit Seven, Yardsville, New Jersey. Basically, is where it is. Okay. Uh, hey, Smiles, like that small time man. I did like Federal ADX style, man. <laughs> yeah. Man, I <laughs> I was a, I was a, I was a kid, man. You know what I mean? Like I, I remember the bus ride down from the county jail all the way down to all, all the way down to the prison. It's about a about an hour, about an hour and a half ride, man. And that was probably the most that was probably the realest moment in my life, man. That that one that hour and a half ride from the county jail to the prison. I mean, like I, I probably had about fifty com fifty different conversations going on in my head at the same time, man. Um, but it was one of those real moments, man. You know, was one was one of those conversations. Um, how did I get myself in this situation? 
Absolutely. <laughs> I was like the first conversation. I'm like, man, how in the world did I, you know what I mean? I'm I'm 20 years old, man. How in the world did I end up, you know, at 20 years old, man, you know, about to give 10 years of my life to prison system, man. I just, you know, I mean, you know, you know, I'm thinking about all of the other roles that I could have taken, you know, all of the other people in my life that I knew that were you know, in their second year in college, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, dudes I knew that were basketball players that were on their way to this place or that place, and here I am on my way to to prison. Mm. So, being you know? being being from um, being from New Jersey, you uh, definitely have been around Islam um, in your youth. What was it um, like? What was your impression of the Muslims before you became Muslim? Like, how did you see them and? What was your, um, uh, you know, what was your opinion of Islam before you found yourself in this in this crisis? Well, I mean, the people that I hung around with, these were like drug dealing Muslims. These weren't like practicing Muslims, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, these yeah. guys were like, you know, I don't eat pork. You know, Ramadan come around, you know, I don't eat for half of the day, but you know, I'm gonna have a meal come lunchtime. You know, these were the type of, you know you know, selling drugs, you know, going to New York, picking up drugs, picking up cocaine, you know, the, these were the type of Muslims that I hung around. So, it, it, you know, I didn't, they didn't, but they didn't, you know, they didn't superimpose Islam on us. Like they weren't like the type of, you know, um, that, that dude in minister society that every time he come around, he's talking righteous, you know, he, they weren't <laughs> those type of Muslims. Like you would never know that they were actually Muslims if you didn't know them personally. You know what I mean? One of the guys, his his father, you know, may Allah have mercy upon him. His father was like, you know, like um like a real big time, you know, guy in North New Jersey. So, um, you know, they came from that. They came from you know drug dealing, criminal Muslim mentality. They came from that. So it was it was really normal. So for me, I didn't really I didn't really make a distinction between, you know, real Islam and practicing spiritual righteous Muslims and people who were, you know, of the caliber of people that were around me. I didn't I didn't really have a gauge, you know what I mean, because that's all I saw. And they didn't really represent Islam. They don't. They didn't come around talking about Islam. If you knew them, you've been to their house. You know they had a Quran in their house, or their mom wore hijab, or something like that. So it, it, I didn't really have a gauge like that. You know, they didn't really represent Islam. So my introduction to Islam came when I was a juvenile. I was incarcerated as a juvenile, and uh, it was a guy that was locked up with me. And um, I went in the bathroom one day, and I saw him what I later know, later come to know as making wudu. And, you know, he's washing his arms. And, you know, I come from a Christian background. Even though I wasn't a practicing Christian, that was my orientation to spirituality. And uh, when I walked in the bathroom and I saw him washing his arms and his face, I'm like, yo, dude, what are you doing? And he's like, you know, I'm preparing for prayer. And I'm like, what prayer are you doing? I'm like, what, what religion are you? And he's like, you know, I'm Muslim. And I'm just like, wow, that's interesting. I never saw that before. So I said, you know, can I pray with you? And he was like, yeah, sure. So he showed me how to make wudu, showed me the steps, and he wrote everything down on a piece of paper for me. And then, you know, I stood next to him, and, you know, we stood in the cell, and we prayed. And he began to, to recite al-Fatiha in, in Arabic. And after we were finished, you know, in my mind, I'm just like, whoa, this guy is in jail with me, street hood dude. You know what I mean? And he's quoting Arabic. After we were done, I'm like, yo, dude, what were you saying? He was like, you know, I was reciting the opening chapter to the prayer. I was like, yeah, but what language was that? 
And he was like, that's Arabic. It has to be done in Arabic. And I'm like, dang, man, I'm intrigued. I'm like, I need you to write that down for me. I, I want to, you know, so fast forward, when I took my Shahada, actually, I memorized Al-Fatiha at that moment. Fast forward, you know, this happened when I was about 16. Fast forward to when I'm 20 and I take my Shahada and the, the brother is walking me through the prayer. He's like, yeah, you got to recite Al-Fatiha. And he, you know, began reciting it. And I'm like, oh, that's the, the same prayer that dude taught me, you know, back when I was like 16. So that I just was able to make the connection, you know. So that was that was pretty much my my introduction to Islam. Okay, you know? now you this so this is like four years into your sentence. Did you do the full ten years, or were you able to get out early? Well, no. What what happens is, is I had a I had a five with a three, a, a five year man, a five year maximum, three year mandatory minimum in New Jersey for drug crimes. You get mandatory minimums. Um, thanks to Bill Clinton for that. So um, you had to do at least three years before you become eligible for parole. And then I went back, I had another charge, and I had those two running cons uh, uh, consecutive, meaning once I'm done with one, I had to do the other one. And the other one was a three, uh, a five with a two. So I had a five with a two and a five and a three. So that equals up to 10 years with a mandatory minimum of five years. So I ended up doing the five years, and what happens is that you get what's called comp time. You know, so they take time off of the back number. So by the time you're done with your five years, you've actually, you know, done the ten. So I, you know, finished without any parole or anything, which actually worked in my favor. So I don't end up in situations like the situation Meek Mill is in right now. You know, parole, probation you know, and getting violated and being sent back into the system. So by the time I was done with my five years, the back number of 10, I had kind of worked that down. So I didn't have any parole. So I ended up doing five years complete. What was the road from uh, release from prison to the Islamic University of Medina? Oh, man. Um, I, I mean, every time I, I revisit that in my mind, it's just like, it's like, it, and I couldn't have, I couldn't imagine that happening again. Like it's like a roll of the dice. Like you never get that again. All right. So once I um I, I got to about three and a half years into my sentence, and then I was sent to transitional housing, which is halfway house. Um, because now you are you you qualify for that as long as you are you know two years or three years um close to your finishing your sentence. So I got sent to North New Jersey, Kintock, which was one of the most notorious halfway houses in, you know, in in the Essex County area. Um, and uh, being sent there, um, I began working and things like that and uh, saving money. And, you know, I got my own apartment and going home on the weekends for furloughs and things like that. So. I would go home for the weekend. I had my own apartment, which you weren't supposed to have. I just like still had that mentality of breaking all the rules and just doing what I wanted to do. So um, I would go home to my aunt's house. I would call the halfway house, let them know that I was there. And then I would go to my apartment and I would stay there pretty much for the weekend. And during that time, I started going to Abu Muslim's community, which was in East Orange, Masjid Ahl-Sunnah, uh, Madrasa to Ahl-Sunnahs. So that was pretty much the area where I grew up. So quite naturally, going back to that environment, that was the only logical place that I would go to for, you know, spiritual services. Was Masjid uh, Rahman so, not around then? 
No, Master Rahma wasn't. This was before, way before Master Rahma. Um, this was around 99. This was around 99. And um, during this time, um, Abu Muslim's situation has started to escalate. And uh, people have started to basically, you know, separate and divide from him. It hadn't like really hit the fan yet, but you had people that were like really hardcore against Abu Muslim, and they were kind of like every time they would leave, they would kind of pull more people away from the community. So I kind of like walked right into that. You know, I remember walking into the masjid one day, just you know, on my break. Like I used to work as a barber, so I was cutting hair in Newark, and uh, the masjid was in East Orange. And where I was cutting hair, I was like about maybe maybe 10 minutes by car. So I used to, you know, I was very diligent about praying in the masjid for every salat, so I would stop cutting, and I would take my car, and I would go up to the masjid and pray. So one day, I remember walking into the masjid, and a brother pulled me to the side, and he was like, yo, Abu Muslim was a deviant, you know, and I'm like, yeah, I'm in the halfway house. Like, that is the least of my worries right now. I'm just trying not to become a drug-dealing, you know, half-behind Muslim. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just trying to keep myself grounded. You know what I mean? Like, you're being half, you're being, you're halfway back out into society, and this is where most people recidivate. Most inmates that are trying to stay out of the prison system this is where they recidivate. This is where they go, end up going back. You know, I can't tell you how many people got sent back to prison that actually came to the halfway house with me. So I'm just trying to stay grounded. So he's like, yo, you know, you got to stay away from him. Don't. And I'm just like, all right, whatever. I, it, it was a whole nother language for me. I didn't even understand what they were talking about. Before you go I on, can you explain? So a lot of our listeners aren't familiar with like the history of the Salafi Dawah and concepts like Temi or Al Marabi or all right, this stuff, right? right? Um, they may have even heard of Abu Muslim. Can you give like a 30 second layman overview, like overview of why they would consider him to be a deviant? Um, well, there was a number of things. One of the things that he, which was the most controversial during that time, was that he said on the mimbar uh, during the Jumu'ah Khutbah that the scholars of Saudi Arabia were not Salafi. That, that was his comment. And that is basically what triggered pretty much everything. And so one of the brothers took that recording back to Sheikh Rabia and Madkhali in, 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 Mecca, in uh, Mecca during that time. And um, that brother was Abu Hassan and Malik. Abu Hassan Malik from uh, who was affiliated with Salafi Publications and um, him. And there was another brother, Abdurrahman Hernando, who's not even Muslim anymore. This person apostated from Islam. Um, and uh, they, they, took his, they took his recorded statement back to this particular sheikh and the sheikh said until he makes toba and repents from that then everyone is to stay away from him and then there were a couple of brothers from that same community who were in yemen at that time and at that time sheikh yahya hujuri was like you know he came in sheikh nukba had just died and um rahmatullahi alayhi and sheikh yahya hujuri kind of took his place and so they took the same statement from, to Sheikh Yahya, and he said pretty much the same thing, maybe even worse. So that is when everything kind of hit the fan with Abu Muslimah, and I kind of walked right into that situation. Um, and then, so one day I was coming to the masjid to pray, and I saw all of these, you know, Saudis on the musalla. There was a table on the musalla. There were all of these Saudis standing around with the gutras on, white thobes. Now, mind you, this is 2000. This is the year 2000. So when I walk onto the musallaf, it was time for Salatul Dhuhr. And I asked one of the brothers, I 
said, what's going on here? He said, those are professors from the Islamic University. They're interviewing for students who want to go to the university. So one of the brothers was like, yo, you should go apply. You know, because I was always, you know, sitting in Abu Muslim's classes, always taking notes. I was always very diligent, very studious uh, from the moment I took my Shahada. And so, you know, some of the brothers in the community, they thought that it would be a good idea for me to go. I was only 24 at the time. And um, so one of the brothers was like, yo, just go apply. And I'm like, well, I'm in the halfway house. You know, I, you know, I don't even have a passport. I don't have nothing. You know what I mean? Like, I barely got a license. <laughs> and so they was like, it doesn't matter. Just go apply and see what happens. So I, I went, I filled out the application, and they were doing interviews right there on the spot. Wow. So... Once I filled out the application, Abu Muslimah was like, yo, um, you sure you want to go? I'm like, yeah, if, you know, if it, if it works out, yeah. So he was like, well, he can do an interview for you now. How much Quran have you memorized? And at that time, I had, you know, I was very diligent with memorizing the Quran. I actually had memorized um, the entire Surah Al-Baqarah while I was in prison, actually. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I had the last Jews memorized, and I had Surah Al-Baqarah memorized. Um, and so when I sat with the particular, these were professors from the university, I don't remember any of the names, but, uh, he began to quiz me, you know, recite Al-Fatiha, what are the six articles of faith? What is Tawheed? Blah, 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 blah. And, um, this was out of nowhere. So he was like, you know, I got your application. He said, you know, when we get back to Saudi Arabia, we'll process your application. And, you know, if everything goes well, then... Uh, I didn't have my passport at the time. So he was like, you need to get your passport. You need to do this and that. So I'm like, okay. So this was in like, um, this was in uh, May of 2000, May of 2000. Um, my, my sentence finished in July of, of 2000. So July, I was let go from the halfway house. I had no more, nothing. I was free. So I had about, $6,500 saved up for the whole time that I was in the halfway house. And what I did is I always wanted to go make Umrah. So me and another brother, um, we bought our tickets. This was before 9-11. So during that time, you didn't need to go with a group. You could just purchase your ticket and go. And I bought my ticket to make Umrah, me and another brother. And uh, maybe about two weeks before we was to go, uh, he said, no, nah, I'm gonna get my money back. I can't go. I can't take off. And I was like, well, I'm still gonna go. I'm not, you know, never been to another country day in my life. I just got my passport, everything. So I said, I'm going. And I went, I went to make Umrah and I met with some students, you know, from America that were there that kind of helped me, you know, navigate. And I went to the Islamic University and I took them the passport photos that they asked for. When I got back to America, um, I got married. So you can see, like, I was very, like, on my path, man. I wasn't playing sure. no games. Mm -hmm. I went, I made Umrah. I came back. I got married in September. I got married in September of 2000. Uh, my wife got pregnant in December of 2000. 2001, fast forward to May of 2001, I got a letter in the mail. My wife called me. I was at the barbershop. She's like, yo, you got a letter in the mail from the Islamic University. I'm like, no way. I said, open it up. Tell me what it says. And she just starts screaming. She's like, yo, you got accepted <laughs> to the university. That was my acceptance letter. I actually posted my acceptance letter on my Instagram page. If you go on my Instagram page, you can see the acceptance letter on there. Oh, and um, she was like, yo, yo, you got accepted. And I'm just like, all right, we're going. I'm never coming back to America. You know, I'm just like, I'm going. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And um, my 
wife gave birth to my son in August, August 12th of 2001. And I left the very next week. So I had only seen my son for a week, my first child, who was actually 16 years old now. Oh, um, I left a week after she had him. And uh, um, maybe three weeks after that, 9-11 happened. Uh, uh, yeah. And you were in, you're in, you're in Saudi Arabia when, it, when 9-11 happened? I was in Saudi when that happened. As a matter of fact, wow. that same morning, my wife was scheduled to leave with my son to come to Saudi Arabia to be with me. I just got all her paperwork straight or whatever. And her father was bringing her to make Umrah. During that time, they wasn't giving out, um, they weren't giving out uh, tasbih permission slips for students' wives. So the scam during that time was that if you wanted your wife to come, your father-in-law had to bring her to make umrah and just leave her. You know, and we actually did that for for the next five years. They actually caught on to it around 2006. My last year in the university, which was 2007, I tried to do it and they was not having it. They didn't let my father-in-law leave. He had to stay with my wife or they had to leave. And so I ended up spending my last year in the university by myself because they caught on to the scheme. They weren't letting students, wives come and stay um, without having a permission slip. So that was that was pretty much how it went down there. So, so now, mind you, I was only home for like a year and a half. You understand what I'm saying? And then to get into the Islamic University at the time when I arrived, you know what I mean? Like, it was just like, you know, Salafi, this, that. And I'm just like, yo, this is child's play. Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, I just came from doing five, uh, five years in prison. You understand what I'm saying? Like, and to go from that to an environment where you got guys talking around, backbiting each other, talking about each other behind. I just, it was something that I just couldn't, I couldn't get with. So a lot of the guys that were like hardcore Salafi is a lot of the guys that are responsible for attacking me today. Uh, some of them were there during that time and I just kind of like shunned them like they weren't even like my caliber of people you know what I mean like I didn't hang around people like that you know what I'm saying the dudes that I hung with pretty much everybody that I hung with right now is either dead or doing you know years years imprisonment right so I wanted to ask about like so it sounds like um as you go through your timeline you've always maintained a pretty good relationship with Abu Muslima and if that's the case I would assume that you were never, according to those brothers and spubs and these guys, on the men hedge, so to speak, right? Is it, would that be accurate to uh, say? Uh, well, my my relationship with Abu Muslim was kind of topsy turvy. Like I kind of had my light bulb moment with him because I think I was there in the community, and aside from all of the the other stuff that they were condemning him for, I saw some things from him that you know I started to kind of make connections and like, nah, this ain't right. This is not right. You know, the way that he handled the community, you know, the way that he handled, he ruled with an iron fist. And I'm talking about from, you know, just from a social standpoint and, you know, how how he damaged the lives of a lot of the younger women. He was very hard with the women. You know, I remember he got on the minbar on Jumwa and he mentioned a young girl's name, you know, in light of, you know, an act of Zina that she committed. She got pregnant by a non-Muslim guy and he mentioned her name on the minbar. And I'm just like, wow, I just, I couldn't, I, I, I'm I, just like, yo, this guy, man, subhanAllah. So, I mean, it wasn't hard. And this is why it wasn't, it wasn't a fight for people. People didn't fight for Abu Musima unless they were like diehard fanatics. But the normal people in the community, 
they actually wanted him gone, you know, and and I felt the same way during that time. And it had nothing to do with the things that the, the Salafis were attacking him for. There were other issues, other, you know, issues that were, you know, there were layers of issues that he had within that community. So my relationship with him, you know, we, we've had our moments, like we've almost come to, you know, we've almost, we, I remember like we being in the office and like, you know, me, you know, almost having my hands around his throat. You understand what I'm saying? Like Abu Muslima doesn't. He's from New Brunswick. Like he's um from not from New Brunswick. Um, um, not not Passaic, Patterson. What is what is that? Um, Piscataway. It's one of one of them places out there, man. It's like and, Central Jersey, right? You know, right. He's not. He's he's not. But he's not a he's not a street guy. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. He's not a street guy. So you got to understand. You know, guy that comes from the streets, come from that type of life, you know, coming into Islam, like you're constantly checking yourself to make sure that you are not, you know, overly aggressive in the community because you have a lot of people, especially leaders in the community, they don't, they don't come from that. You know what I mean? Your Dawood Adibs and your Abu Muslimas and, you know, your Abu Oasis, like Rahmatullah, they, they, don't, they don't come from that. You know what I'm saying? You understand what I'm saying? Like I'm one of those unique people that, you know, for whatever reason, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guided me to this place that, you know, people that come from where I come from don't usually end up in spaces that I'm in right now. You understand? Yeah. And it's not just me. There's a couple of there's a couple of students and knowledge that I know that came from that that street life. You understand what I'm saying? And um, you got to constantly check yourself. So my relationship with Abu Muslim wasn't all cool. It wasn't until I realized, you know, the, the, the bigger scheme of it all. And um, I could kind of see this whole Salafi situation for what it was that I learned how to temper, you know, my attitude towards him. And while I take issue with a lot of things that he's done in the past, I still cannot dismiss, you know, overall the good that he has brought to the community. You know what I mean? So it's learning how to find that balance. And, you know, Alhamdulillah, I think that, you know, at this point in my life, I've matured to a point. Well, I've learned how to have that balance, but our relationship wasn't always good. Sure. You know, but um, I wanted to ask at the Islamic University of Medina, I've always heard that there's always these, bro- you know, how are you able to? Like, you gr- it sounds like by the timeline, you pretty much got out in six years. You did your two years Arabic and then your four years in the sh- in the faculty, right? But a lot of right. brothers will like, especially the do'at for the these movements, will go in and they'll maybe do Arabic and then flunk out at some point because they're just caught up in the business of just like talking smack about like shuyuk and whatnot. And I, I've always heard, like I was talking to um y- y- Yasser Qadi about this a long time ago. I remember he was telling me when he first got there, he's like, the first thing they do is like uh, Sheikh Rabia's folks will like take you to his house. Right. And yeah. that's that kind of like, that's the kind of thing. And it's like, you either you fight it off or whatever. And if you ain't down with it, then they just like, you just become this dude that one of those people that you can't roll with. Um, and I saw a lot of like brothers who other brothers who have studied at the Medi- at, you know, at the University of Medina since have told me it's similar. Um, how did you like deal with Navigate that? that? Well, at the beginning, um, when I first got there, Yasser called the was he was there. Um, he got there a few year, years, years before he was actually getting ready to start his master's program when I first got there. Um, Tahir Wyatt was like he was in his last year in the College of Hadith. This was all when I first got there. And when I first got there, like Yasser was, you know, the guy that everybody was like warning against. 
you know, and for me, I was I was a stickler for memorizing Quran. So when they told me that, yes, it was, you know, the only American student there that had memorized Quran, I'm like, well, I need to meet him. I need to get with him and I need to be around him. And I was always one that never kind of like went with the whole clickish stuff. You know, what I mean, and so. I started, you know, being around Yasser. He used to have like these these gatherings for the American students and things like that, where he would translate, you know, and things like that. And he was very active in trying to help the new students get acclimated to the university. And then, you know, I started sitting with some of those same scholars, Sheikh Ubaid Jabadi, and you know, you know, it because they used they used language that was easy for students to understand. It wasn't complicated matters of the religion. They talking about Tawheed. And so as a new student, you're going to naturally incline towards that because they're using language that, number one, appeals to you. Everyone loves the subject of Tawheed, theology, things like that. And number two, the language that they use is not technical language. It's just real simple language. I remember Sheikh Obey did, um, you know, Usul al-Talatha, the three fundamental principles. He finished the book in like two weeks. You know what I mean? It's like it was just like really simple. And so you'll find a lot of American students there as well. So I got a, I kind of got caught up in that, not necessarily in the click of it, but just going to attend those lectures. And then I started to see the hypocrisy. I started to see, you know, um, the nepotism. I started seeing the the clickish, and you know, and I'm I'm watching it from a from a bird's eye view. I'm watching it. I'm not actually in it, but I'm in it enough to see what's going on. You know, I'm, I'm a street guy, so. You know, my, you know, my senses are, are always, are always on, you know, heightened levels because you come from that type of lifestyle. So you're always on 10 in terms of, you know, self-guarding and protecting and things like that. And so I started seeing this, you know, certain things go on amongst them. And then I'm just like, nah, I can't get with this, but I still wanted the benefits. So I was one of those students that would go listen, take notes. And then after it's over, while they're all crowding around the shake, I'm, I leave. You know what I mean? I don't get caught up in the click part of it. But I did go to those scholars and benefit from those scholars because that was, you know, the scholars were basically endorsing one another. So if you were in the university and Sheikh Abdul Razak was one of your professors and then he would praise this sheikh or that sheikh outside of the university. And you're like, OK, well, he must be OK. The sheikh pra praised him and said good thing. And Saudis, they have this thing about them where, you know, they, they have this thing where they feel like they got to praise one another. And, and it's exaggerated praise of one another until they get into a scuffle with each other. And then it's like they don't know a middle course. Like, you know, what I'm saying like many of them, they don't know a middle course when they love you. The love is extreme and exaggerated. And when they hate you and dislike you, the hatred is extreme and exaggerated. You understand what I'm saying? So I kind of navigated just based upon having a multitude of scholars that I benefited from. I remember we were sitting with Sheikh Abdul Razak, and this was like kind of the, 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 the straw for me. Sheikh Abdul, um, Sheikh Abdul Mursin, we was at the Prophet's Masjid one night. And this is at the time when Sheikh Fali al-Harabi was like the major, major scholar. He was actually bigger than Sheikh Rabir during that time. Mm. And one of the students asked Sheikh Abdul Mursin, this was right after Salatul Isha, there's a whole bunch of students crowding around him. And so one of the students said, should we go visit Sheikh Fali al-Harabi? And Sheikh Abdul Mursin said, no. You he mean Mursin uh, al-Abad? Yes, yeah. Sheikh Abdul Mursin al-Abad. This was around 2003. 2003. 
And Sheikh Abdul Mursin was like, no, don't go to his house. Don't go visit him. Don't sit with him. Don't take knowledge from him. He's not even a Tawalib. He's not even a small student of knowledge. And everybody was like, whoa. <laughs> whoa. And I mean, it was the confirmation that I needed because I already stopped going to visit him. And so for me, I was like, I'm glad someone said something. I'm really glad that you brought up uh, Sheikh uh, Muhsin al-Abbad because he is one of the um, – uh, as I see it, as I understand it, he's one of the scholars in Saudi Arabia who decided to kind of um, enough was enough, and he decided to hit the brakes on this, um, um, you know, disease that was spreading, um, that was basically destroying the the movement of the of the Salafi movement, and he tried to rescue it. So when I I, I saw, um, I, you know, I've, I was in prison for 13 and a half years, so I missed out on a lot of what was going out here on the street, but. Um, I uh, was following a little bit about some of this because it was coming into the into the prison system. Um, and um, when I got out, I saw Sheikh Tahir Wyatt uh, speak in um, Washington, D.C. at the Museum for the TAM Group, the, the organization they were doing. And I was really amazed at his open-mindedness. Um, and he seemed to have really moved way past this kind of, um, you know, he was seem much more in the mode of Sheikh Mohsen. And when I heard your um, your video, I watched your video on reclaiming our communities, and you seem to have made that same uh, kind of, um, let's say, I don't know if it's in, an intellectual move, but it's it's a rise above um, that, and to try to take um, try to take the benefit of uh, what the Salafi movement had to offer, and to try to uh, bring it to to everyone instead of keep it in, in a closed place. Am I understanding that correctly? Is that how you see this? Um, yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. I mean, there there were layers of uh, of dysfunction within it. I mean, um, some of it has just kind of gone on for years, and you know, people just really haven't had the gall to like to stand up and say what it is, you know. And I mean, for me, I just always felt like a lot of the scholars would always say, you know, leave them alone, busy yourself with seeking knowledge. But it reaches a point where they it's infectious. You know what I mean? Like they begin to infect so many people. You can't just busy yourself with knowledge because even the people that benefit from you or try to benefit from you, they're always being confronted by, you know, one of your adversaries saying, oh, don't listen to him. Don't take from him. And it complicates it. So it's not like if they would just go in their own little corner and do them. I mean, everything would work out fine. You know, they would have their, you know, they would have their click. They would have their, you know, cult, you know, and their following. And you could allow the rest of the Muslims to just, you know, do what they think is necessary for them. But they don't do that. They don't stay in their little circle. They infiltrate. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like, I mean, to the point where, like, a lot of these guys will even come while I'm giving a lecture on Periscope on, you know, uh, Facebook Live. And they will troll and they will say things and, you know, just to disrupt. And it's just like, why? You know, and so you realize that it's bigger than just you know, leave these guys alone and just busy yourself with knowledge. No, we have to put that on pause and we have to take, you know, stop what we're doing and come over here and deal with this. Because so you, that is not going to go away. It's not going to go away by just ignoring it. You you're, you have basically called out the emperor for having no clothes. Um, my question is, what is the next move um, in terms of, I mean, specifically your next move and what is the next move of the people who think in the way that you do in bringing the benefits of the Salafi movement to the broader African American community, African American Muslim Muslim community, and what what do what can you guys offer now um, 
to the African-American Muslim community and, and broader African-American communities? I can't really speak for, you know, every anybody else. Like, you know, I, I don't I don't generalize, you know, my trajectory and, you know, and say that, you know, these this is where the students of knowledge like I don't have any communication with any other students. I don't you know, I don't you know, there's a couple of students that are, you know, within the vicinity, you know, our brother Ali Davis. Um, you know, at, at times, uh, Sheikh Abu Osama, you know, we communicate, but, you know, I'm pretty much in my zone, man. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm in my zone. I don't get caught up in the whole hype of, you know, these students are coming home and they're going to do this and they're going to do that. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, I don't get caught up in that. That's, that's, that, in my opinion, is, you know, stifling. Because when you get, when you get involved in, you know, well, the, this is the direction that the students are going or should be going, you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm just doing what I love to do and what I believe. Is going to be of service to our communities. If there's another student of knowledge, there's a, another group of students of knowledge that you know are along the same lines. You know their lines are parallel to you know the lines that I'm drawing in the sand. Then you know alhamdulillah khair al khair. That's good. You know, but I don't, I don't, I work well by myself. I don't work well with others. I don't get caught up in the whole click. You know, I don't. And I mean, there's clicks. I mean, not just for Salafi publications and them. I mean, even among students and knowledge, it's like we get into these groups and it becomes controlling. Oh, you shouldn't have said that. Oh, you shouldn't do this. And I, I don't personally, I don't function like that. I don't function when I have somebody trying to quarterback, you know, from, you know, from a distance what I'm doing. You know what I mean? Like you can offer me advice. I'm not above being advised. You can offer me advice. You can offer me, you know, some suggestions, you know, great. And if I see it to be that way, then alhamdulillah, I will take the advice. But as far as, you know, as a collective, what students and I can't speak for them. As far as myself is concerned, uh, I've kind of pretty much laid out the things that I would like to attack. One of them is the issue of brotherhood and the issue of learning how to, you know, reclaim our communities, you know, moving that nonsense out of our communities, shunning that stuff. I put out a list of people who we shouldn't take from. Who gives them authority to say who we shouldn't take from? I'm going to say, no, we don't take from you. We don't take from you. So I'm going to reverse that and put that on you. And I'm going to warn against your books and your bookstores and your organization and uh, make people understand that we are investing money in Salafi Publications is a multi-million dollar you know, organization. Make no mistake about that. I published all of their, all of their information is public information. I didn't get that information from an individual. I got that off of a website. They are a non-profit organization. And in the UK, they publish everything online. So last year alone in 2016, in donations, they collected upwards of, you know, 400,000 pounds in donations alone. Now, the last time I checked, you know, African-American Salafi Muslims didn't really have much, you know, you know, evidenced by the shacks that they call masjids. You understand what I'm saying? Like, where are you getting the money from? You know what I mean? Like, they collected upwards of, you know, almost 280,000 pounds in book sales. You understand what I'm saying? For sure. So, you know, when I, when I threw that out there, I'm just hoping that people, you know, are wise enough to see what's going on. Like, where, where are you getting your funding from? Like, so I wanted people to understand that this thing is bigger than just Abu Khadija and Salafi Publications, man. This thing is bigger than what you think it is. 
And when I saw those numbers, I, that's the first thing that came to my mind. I'm like, all right, who is funding these guys? Because when you look at their tactics, their tactics almost resemble, you know, media tactics, CNN and, you know, and all of these other aggressive media outlets and how they attack and how quickly, how swiftly they move. You understand? It's almost like they have a team of people already on the ground waiting and they go through your lectures, they go through your writings and they clipping out stuff and they putting YouTube videos out and putting stuff out on Twitter and put this out. And I mean, so many different avenues. Not only that, they've monopolized the internet. So you have, you know, Troy.org, you have Selfie Publications, you have Selfie Inc., Selfie Talk, Selfie This, Selfie That, and it's all ran by the same organization. Well, they, they've also monopolized prisons. So I was, yes, you know, that's a whole other issue. Yes. Yeah. So yes. I wanted to ask, I wanted to ask you about that. I, I was arrested in 2003 and for the first three and a half years of my sentence, I was um, in a regular uh, prison population, the federal prisons. And there was the, this, the selfie element was there, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't this hardcore uh, group of uh, selfie publications types. It was, you had kind of a, uh, it was a more mellow uh, kind. You had books from Jamal Zarabozo, you had books from Yasser Qadi, and you had right. yeah, and you also and you had books from Saudi Arabia, and it was a it was a um, it was kind of like that. And then um, I went into um, isolation units, uh, units for people with terrorism cases. I was I was gone off the compounds for seven and a half years. When I came back out in 2014, I was shocked to see like like I mentioned to someone, I was like. Um, uh, they were they were talking about one of the 40 hadith, and I said, hey, you know, uh, uh, Jamal Zarbozo's got a nice commentary on that. And he looked at me like I was, you know, I had just said I'm, I, I'm converting to Christianity, you know. Wow. And yeah, and, and then it went from there. It was just, it was, um, it, it was really, really difficult. And was, it, there were a lot of beautiful brothers, but um, they're, they're very confused, and they're completely held hostage by this, um, by this. So I wanted to ask you, like, what is the solution for this, you know, and how did this happen? Well, um, we just, um, I do something called the Maradia show where I, you know, pretty much no matter where I am, I'll whip out my phone and just spark up a conversation. You know, I think these conversations are, you know, far more beneficial than a lot of the didactic lectures that are being held because it's, it's real people expressing real emotion, real feeling about real issues. Uh, unlike a person just opening up a book and just kind of regurgitating to you what they understand from what a sheikh said, you know, it's just really formal and, and a lot of times it's not as effective. So uh, just recently at the conference in Atlantic City, the unity conference that we had in Atlantic City, um, I had brother uh, Mufti Muhammad Munir uh, Abu Usama Adhabi and um, uh, um, uh, I'm forgetting who was the third one on there. Nonetheless, I had them on the Maradia show and we were actually talking about one of my questions was, how did this stuff start? How did it start? And, you know, who's responsible? You know, because we're looking at two generations gone, you know, I mean, from, you know, as a result of this and, and no one's accountable. No one is responsible for that. Who's responsible? And so, you know, alhamdulillah, there were some very nice responses. And I told the speakers, I told Abu Osama and I told Mufti Munir before we began, I said, don't bite your tongue. Don't hold back. Say what you need to say, man. Don't fear anyone except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The whole idea of, all right, you've already been warned against. I mean, like, there's no double jeopardy here. Like, you've already <laughs> been talked about and dogged out. Like, I mean, like, what more can they say about you other than the fact that you're a kafir? I mean, like, that's the, you know, that that's pretty much where, you know, where it goes. There's nothing else left. So it's nothing to fear. 
And um, so going back to how it began, um, I think one, uh, oh, uh, Ali Davis was the third person. And uh, I think um, Abu Osama had alluded to the fact that this began with the whole need of, you know, that validation from, you know, foreign interpretation of Islam, you know, you know, constantly running back to the scholars. And Ali Davis put on, he, he touched on a good point. He said, you know, when you running back and forth to scholars, asking them frivolous questions, they're thinking in their mind that you guys are ignorant. So they're going to basically steer you in whatever direction they want to steer you because you've proven to them through your excessive questioning, through your frivolous questions and, you know, the type of questions that are being asked, that you guys are really incapable of managing your own communities. And so they stepped in and they began to micromanage our communities from Saudi Arabia. That's exactly how it happened. Constantly running back and forth. Shake, you know, there's an imam here who says blah, blah, blah. And, you know, what should we do? Oh, you should warn against him. You should do this. You should do that. And, and they're basically micromanaging our communities from Saudi Arabia because we have painted a picture that we are, you know, uh, incompetent and we are not qualified enough you know the whole idea that there are no scholars in america that was that came from them when you say that there are no scholars in america you know basically the only people that are scholars are arabs from saudi arabia is, is basically what you're saying that's that's what you're not saying you understand what i'm saying yeah I and uh, and and when you create this mindset. And this is what they did. It, they created concepts and philosophies and they spread this stuff amongst people using, you know, statements of scholars to back it up. And people bought into it. And Brother Muhammad Mufti Munir, he said something very profound. He said, there are three people who are three categories of people who are responsible for all of this. He said, number one, the scholars who answered a lot of these questions without understanding the background of the people they were responding to. Anytime the Prophet ﷺ sent one of his companions, he always informed them, you are going to a people from the people of the book. You're going to a people here. He informed them, gave them a heads up so that they would understand the people, you know, the dynamics, the cultural dynamics, the spiritual dynamics of the people that you're going to speak to so that you are conscious of, you know, your words and how your words are going to affect them, either draw them closer to Islam or push them further away. And these scholars, they didn't do that. They didn't even care to do that. They didn't care when when you asked them about what do you say about Bilal Phillips, he's this, he's that. They didn't care that Bilal, you know, is a, is a major figure in, you know, shaping, you know, Islam here in the West. They didn't care about any of that. They didn't care that he wrote multiple books, you know, defending Islam against, you know, some of the deviant ideologies of some of the cults and other people that kind of, you know, trying to superimpose their ideologies on the Muslims. They didn't care about any of that. They didn't care he's a possessor of multiple PhDs. They didn't care that he has his own online university. You know, they didn't care about any of that. They just said, stay away from him. He's a deviant. He's this, he's that. All right. So the scholars are responsible. He said the students of knowledge are responsible because they were the ones who was the pipeline between the scholars and our communities. And they translated all of this stuff. They had their own personal issues with this imam, that imam, and they ran overseas and they got whatever ammunition from these scholars and they came back and they lit our communities. They set our communities on fire. They so, fragmented, so. they divided, they separated, he said. And thirdly, the hmm. lay people, they are responsible because they didn't use the God-given common sense that Allah gave every single one of us. So how in the world you let an Arab from a whole nother country, whole nother society tell you you live right here in this environment, tell you that it's haram for you to go to college. And right. you right here, you live down the street from the university. I live down the street from the University of Delaware, literally seven minutes from the University of Delaware. 
you're all the way in Saudi Arabia. There's the University of Delaware right now has one of the largest population of Saudi students in American <laughs> universities. You understand what I'm saying? I can Starbucks right across the street from the university, and right now there's a gang of Saudis sitting out in the chair, smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee. You know, students in the university. But you telling me, American citizen, that it is haram, haram for me to go to college to, you know, educate myself, to better my education, to better the education of my children, to enhance the quality of life that I'm trying to give to this next generation of my children. You understand what I'm saying? Like, and we bought into that. Sheikh, uh, in your Reclaiming Our Communities uh, video, I th I thought that you did something really um, very uh, brilliant. And I'm not saying that to, uh, to praise you or flatter you, but this is actually the reason why I, I um, was um, really insisting that we bring you on the show. And that was your analysis of um, the balance between um, not being nationalist on the one hand, but also on the other hand, um, accepting and valuing and uh, cherishing our, um, the community that we come from. So it happened to me in prison that um, the imam, um, our imam, was an, um, uh, he was uh, from St. Louis, uh, African-American. Uh, this is over at Allenwood, uh, right near you, Allenwood, Pennsylvania, um, Federal Correctional Institution. Okay. So um, I, he made me the assistant imam, and I was also his cellie, his cellmate. Um, so as assistant, not, not really assistant imam, but I was assistant. So what he would do is he would do the khutbah three days, um, three of the Fridays out of the month and have me do the khutbah one of the Fridays. So he wound up, he wound up going to the whole um, over a, a food strike that was um, alleged to be uh, planned. And so he was gone, and he was gone for a couple months. So for those couple months, I was just doing the khutbah every Friday because we, no one else really knew the khutbah to the hajjah or anything like that. So um, right. after after a while, some brothers came to me, and they said, uh, brother, you know, a lot of people are starting to complain because they say that um, they have uh, white people telling them what to do all week, um, you know, these officers, and they don't want to come on Friday and have another white guy tell them what to do. You know, And in, in my mind, I, I actually completely understood that. Like to me, that's not a that's not a, a racist thing. It's it's the fact that these are people who don't really. Um, first of all, they're not they're not um, really steeped in um, the in Islam per se. They're 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 street guys. They're guys who are new to the religion. They're guys who and and they want to hear people speak in their language. You know, I'm I've got this real square, uh, suburban Midwest West County accent. You know what I mean? And so, uh, St. Louis accent. So and I and I don't have the same background, and I can't make the, uh, I can't make some of the ref references that resonate. And you know, I I'm I'm just coming from a different place. So um, it's understandable to me. So what I thought was so interesting about your your talk is that I thought you really struck a balance between. Um, between the, the sort of extreme, like a sort of an extreme on one hand of being nationalist and the extreme on the other, uh, which is having Saudis micromanage your community. So I wanted to ask you, um, can you elaborate a little bit more on um, on this? Um, you know, I, one of the fantastic points you made was how is it that Palestinians can celebrate, you know, being Palestinian, but African-Americans can't? Um, you really hit, you know, you really did a lot of that in your in your talk, but I wanted to see if, if there was anything else more that you could elaborate on there. Um, yeah, well, I mean, the, the cultural references, I mean, even the Prophet Sallallahu what made him so effective with the Sahaba was that he was able to give them cultural references. I mean, yeah. when you, I, I mean, I can give you a ton of hadith where in, he used references that only Arabs would understand, not just Arabs, but only People in his environment would understand. Mm -hmm. Said 
if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was to guide by your hands one person, it would be better for you than red camels. Do you understand that reference? <laughs> no. <laughs> Do you have you ever even seen a red camel? I, I've lived in Saudi Arabia. I don't I have never seen a red camel in my life. Yeah. Didn't even know they existed. And even if, then what is the value of a red camel amongst Arabs? Obviously, it meant something for him to use that reference. You understand what I'm saying? So when you think about things like that, you have to understand that the Prophet ﷺ, he knew his people. He knew how to communicate to them. He knew how to use references that would serve as you know, uh, incentives to get them to do things. Now, when you take somebody uh, who is Caucasian, who grew up, you know, I mean, you have some Caucasians that grew up in predominantly hood environments, you know, where there's, you know, ghettos, you know, inner city, poor inner city. You take a guy like Eminem. He's an honorary black guy. I mean, like, <laughs> you know, all his friends were black. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, he's an honorary black dude. You know what I mean? Like, for Eminem to get up and, you know, and even him, when you look at Eminem, he, he uses caution, even mm -hmm. when he's addressing black issues. You understand what I'm saying? Because he knows that even though he might have that past in the hood because he grew up in those environments and all of his friends and all of his references is that he still has to exercise caution because he still has a past. He still has can benefit from the white privilege that is systematically given to Caucasians that live in this environment. So you take an African-American like myself, come from, you know, come from the hood. And we get down to prison and all of the guards are white. And sometimes they call you nigga to your face. They don't care. You know what I'm saying? Like, they don't care. You're not going to do anything to them. And then you go to Jumu'ah services and then the imam is a white guy. You know, what What message is being sent? Now, mind you, the person that called me to Islam was a Caucasian brother. I never forget him, Abdulaziz. He was one of the people that I actually uttered the shahana because of him. After Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He said to me, like, my man brought me to the masjid. They were giving a lecture about death or whatever. And um, my man asked me after I finished, he was like, yo, do you want to take your shahada? I was like, mm, I'm still on the ropes, man. And so this brother, Abdulaziz, came up to me. He said, man, let me ask you a question. He said, if you, do you know, do you believe Islam is the truth? I said, yes. He said, well, let me ask you, if you die right now knowing that Islam is the truth, how do you think you stand before God on the day of judgment? And it was like a ton of bricks just hit me in my head. And I uttered my shahada right then and there. You know, so I'm not saying that a Caucasian cannot be effective in communicating Islam to people who are predominantly black. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that Caucasians sometimes lack the, the sympathy for the people that they are addressing because they're speaking from, especially those that do not come from those environments, you're speaking from a different reference point. If you grew up in, in you know, a silver spoon in your mouth and you grew up in middle-class America, you went to high schools that gave you laptops, you understand what I'm saying? Like, we, we, we went to high schools that you had metal detectors at the front door. You understand what I'm saying? Where you got, you went to a school where you were given laptops. You know what I mean? Like your school budget was, you know, in the hundreds of thousands. You know what I'm saying? Like school millions. budget, we, you know, you understand what I'm saying? In the millions. Yes. You understand? And then now you become Muslim and then you come to this environment. And then not only are you, your, your speech is automatically going to sound condescending. It's going to sound condescending because you are speaking from your own reference point.
And you can't deny that, you know, and I'm not saying that a white a Caucasian convert or a Caucasian Muslim cannot be effective in a predominantly African-American community. But you also have to consider the cultural lines that are being neglected and sometimes overstepped because you are not sensitive enough to understand the dynamics that are at play here. You know, and um, you think about, you know, the example that I used was a guy named Umar Quinn, who was actually the brother-in-law of Abu Awais, rahimahullah ta'ala. And, um, you know, you listen to some of his khutbas, you know, and how he screams on the microphone, screams on the minbar, and how his words could... And I mean, like, I could get on the minbar and say the same exact thing, and it would be received well. He could get on the minbar and say the same exact thing, and people would be like, man, see, this is why I can't take from, you know, a white convert. This is why I can't take from a white imam, whatever, because it comes off... It, you are not sensitive enough to understand the cultural boundaries that are here, that are at play. And... You know, I, I would think that as a, you know, white imam that you would try to cultivate somebody from their own. And not only that, the point that I mentioned was that why is it that white converts spend the vast majority of their time in predominantly African-American communities? Why don't you go back to your environment and begin giving dawah in your environment, middle middle class suburban America? Why don't you go? I can't go there. You understand what I'm saying? Like, they're not going to invite somebody like me the moment I open my mouth and, you know, I start using, you know, my vernacular changes when I'm speaking sometimes and I get emotional. It comes off as aggressive. I become that aggressive black man. You understand what I'm saying? And then, you know, so there's environments, areas that we can't go. I, I've been to Pakistani masjids that won't invite me back because they figure that my address is too aggressive. I get off the member, brother, you know, the khutbah was very good, but lower your voice, please. And you know, change. It's like you're asking me basically not to be me. You understand? When so, I go to an African-American community, they love it. They want more. They don't even want you to stop. You understand? Right. So it, we have to be sensitive to these matters. And it's not a matter of nationalism. I'm the imam of a predominantly Indo-Pak Arab community. I am an Islamic studies teacher at a school that is predominantly Arab and Pakistani. You know what I'm saying? Like, like we are always going to be a minority, no matter where we go. We're always going to be a minority. So to say that an African American, because he is advocating, you know, um, you know, awareness of these cultural lines, to label the person as nationalistic especially from people who are African-American. The funny thing about it is that I had many white Muslims come on my Facebook page, comment under that same lecture. It's like, yo, I totally get it. I benefit from white privilege. I, If I was not recording this right now, I would pull up. I would pull up. Matter of fact, let me stop because I got I to gotta show you this. This okay. came to me this morning, just this morning. Um, Caucasian sister. Let me just show you her picture first, all right? So you can actually see, all right? So you see her, Michelle, at the top, right? Yes. yes. Right. Okay. I'm going to click on the message that she sent me. She said, Assalamu alaikum. I've listened to two of your lectures. I've read many of your posts and took Shahada 21 years ago. Throughout all of these years, throughout all of the cultural communities I've, in, I've been involved in, I must say to you, you are the very first person that is straightforward about the true issues that are in the way of true understanding our religion. I understand your conviction is for the African-American community. And no, I am not African-American, but I am Muslim. I am older. I have two biracial kids and a grandson. And wallahi, 
You have completely inspired me to follow you, your lectures, and you have given me the hope that I have been searching for, for the future of our dean in America. Beautiful, just beautiful. May Allah continue to guide you and advance you in your cause and learning and understanding. I, I mean, like, and this, I mean. this is, a, you understand what I'm saying? Like, I had Caucasian Muslims, Joe Bradford, who was in, you know, was a scholar, you know, and also um, graduate from the Islamic University. Um, Joe Bradford, he also got on um, Twitter. He jumped on Twitter. And, and he said, he said, yo, I listened to the whole lecture. And the lecture was three hours. And I'm, I'm sorry about that, but I had to air some grievances <laughs> out. <laughs> Joe said, I listened to the whole lecture. He said, and, and Joe was, he was actually very close with Yasser Qadhi when I got there. Joe was, had been there a few years before I got there. And him and Yasser were very close as well. And he was like, I know Shadid from, from the very beginning when he first got to the university. And I know the guy is not nationalistic, nationalistic and he's not a racist. He said, I listened to the whole lecture. There was no, And then he began to quote statistics about how whites can walk into a bank and get a loan quicker than an African-American. How whites earn on average more. Their salaries are more and they earn more than the average. The average African-American doesn't even earn minimum wage. The Average Caucasian American earns between forty-five and sixty-five thousand a year. You understand what I'm saying? Look at prison demographics. You know. Yeah, yeah. Look at the you know the incarceration, the incarceration rates. You know, I mean, like it's it's it, and the sad thing about it is that I will have African Americans condemn me for being nationalistic, and they are more you know they are more you know uh, vigilant and more you know. And, and more diligent about making that claim, then you would find Caucasian Americans, Caucasian Muslims, you know? Right. And all we want to do is just just own it, just own what it is, and then we can move forward with the conversations. Imam yeah. Shadid, we have 15 minutes left, and I, I wanted to uh, ask you about, like, this whole situation of cultural competency and whatnot. Um, it's my perception from, from an outsider that... Um, it's the Salafis that have dropped the ball on this in a Muslim community, but there are Muslims in in America. For example, let's take Hamza Yusuf, for example, or Usama Kanan or Suhaib Webb. Um, right. it, when you were around their fall, I, I I was at an event yesterday in Chicago where they because uh, I, I don't know if you know who Usama Kanan is, but he's been diagnosed with like ALS, so that's like a terminal illness. Really? Right. Yeah, I know, I don't know him personally, but I've seen you know some of his things. Yeah, you know. but if you look at the crowd around you, it's very. It's Muslims who are of like Caucasian backgrounds or or black backgrounds or or Latino backgrounds, but they're not talking like when I was around Salafi African Americans, they would always use Arabic vernacular, even if they didn't know Arabic. You talk right. to them, you were like, you know, you ask them a question, they'd be like, "Naam," but they only know right. a few words here and there. And I'm like, right. "Why are you trying to be Arab, bro? Like, unless you are." And I find with a lot of like. Those traditionals, the or the we call the Sufi types, their followers are just themselves, right? right. They're Muslim, you know what I mean. Um, do you feel like there's something that cause that's something that we we talk about like a lot of the people that you were working with? Um, I, I feel like there's people in Jersey that even though you you can agree to disagree with, probably I don't know if you know Dr. Shadi Al Masri, he's in New Brunswick, or Imam Fahim Lee, I think his name is. Yeah, um, yeah. These are guys that are probably you ain't y'all ain't gonna agree with on a lot of things, but like there's they may have some things of cultural competency that maybe you can y'all can like unite on, and also from the perspective of like the 
you know, it hasn't, I don't know if it's hit your communities yet in the inner cities, but like concept of like, you know, where people can choose their own gender or LGBT gone haywire, um, that kind of stuff where, you know, you know, but, you know, but that's just my perception, at least. I, I've seen that, like, a lot of the followers of, like, Hamza Yusuf, Suhaib Webb, these guys, they've been Muslim for a long time, and but they're not, like, you know, they're still, like, um, you know, American. You know what I mean? American. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and, and whatnot. What, what are your thoughts on that? And would you be willing to work with those kind of individuals, even though you may, acknowledging the fact that y- y'all may not see eye to eye on, like, many theological or other issues? Um... Well, as as far as um the whole the idea of the LGBT and you know being basically progressive progressive right. Islam, yeah, um, pretty much. Um, and while I uh, understand you know the the need for um you know keeping up with the times and you know being able to be relatable to people that live here in America and and being able to keep our identity as American Muslims, you know, I I, I totally believe in that. Um, but I also believe that there should be a balance between that and our, you know, connection to the religion on a, on a deeper level. You know, I don't think that, you know, we should, um, we shouldn't say, instead of saying, inshallah, saying God willing, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like we shouldn't just go to the extreme. There's an extreme element to everything. And I think that, uh, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, I know he said that shaitan doesn't care whether you miss your mark, you go to the, the you go too much too far to the right or too far to the left, just as long as you don't hit your target, you know, and I think that we have to constantly be aware of that, you know, shaitan does not care whether you go too far to the right, too far to the left, the only thing he's concerned with is that you'd never hit your target, and I think with the whole progressive Islam movement, I think a lot of times they mean well. I think um, a lot of their concepts are rooted in, you know, just basic common sense and, you know, um, something that, you know, many of the Salafis, you know, kind of lost sight of. Um, But I also think that there's an extreme element to that as well that, you know, has allowed them to be very detached from some of the basic teachings of Islam, from some of the basic, you know, the the core elements that, you know, the Sahaba, fought and shed blood for and died for to, to make sure that the next generation of Islam, you know, could hold on. I mean, like the Prophet ﷺ didn't exert himself to the degree that he did so that we could, you know, become American Muslims. You know what I mean? Like he, there there was a deeper layer of Islam, that deeper level of Islam that he wanted Muslims to have a connection with. Why do you think he prayed so diligently? Why do you think he got up at night and he exerted himself? He didn't exert himself like that so we could just say, okay, well, yeah, that's from Islam, but, you know, we're American Muslims and we don't need to necessarily go that far. You understand? Then that would mean that all he did was in vain. And, and the Sahabas, you know, um, their approach to preserving all of these things and documenting these things and preserving it in books and volumes. You understand what I'm saying? Like all of that would be in vain if we say, okay, well, that's not, we don't necessarily need to go that far. I think there needs to be a balance with everything. You can be progressively Muslim. You can keep up with the time and you can maintain, you know, I, I myself, I try to make sure that, you know, I stay within a certain boundary. Like, I, yeah, I tackle modern day issues. You know what I'm saying? I'm aware of cultural issues that are going on in our environment. Like, you know, the whole idea with Meek Mill, the whole idea with Tyrese and all of these other issues. And I stay 
on top of all of that, because a lot of those things are rooted in some of the problems that we're having in the Islamic community. And to say, well, I don't listen to music or I don't watch TV or whatever the case may be and try to make yourself seem like you're uber religious, but you're also neglecting, you know, a social component to our religion, which, you know, the vast majority of the sorrows that were revealed in the Medinan period dealt with social issues, marriage, divorce, the social infrastructure, socioeconomic issues. There are ayats in the Quran, there are hadith of the Prophet that deal with all of those things. And those things kind of, you know, going to continue to resound throughout our communities, continue to reverberate in our communities as we move forward with time. So we can never lose sight of that. But also, we have to keep ourselves grounded in the religion. And I think a lot of those brothers, although they mean well, I think a lot of times they lose sight of, you know, keeping people, keeping the people grounded. Because even when you talk to a lot of the Muslims that are so-called progressive, you know, you don't even hear, you don't hear Islam. You don't hear it. You don't hear Islam. You know, it's almost like you're talking to non-Muslims. Yeah. Right, so I, I, I don't know that I'd call some of those guys progressives in the sense. Children. Yeah. No, no, I... become of their children, right. you understand? If, Sheikh, if, you are, if you are progressive, progressively Muslim, you're a progressive, right? And you take this, this whole uh, liberal approach to Islam, what is to become of your children? Because with each generation, the, the next generation doesn't become more Islamically in tune. They become right. less and less until we reach the point where people will say, I heard our forefathers saying, la ilaha illallah. We don't really know what it means, but we're saying what we heard them say. Oh, this wow. is prophesied from the Prophet Wasallam that there will come a time where people will say, la ilaha illallah, and they will say that we heard our forefathers saying, la ilaha illallah. We don't really know what it means, but we heard them saying it. And the progressive Muslims, this is exactly what's going to happen to their children. SubhanAllah, Sheikh, we're living in a time where um, here in America we have activists, so quote-unquote activist Muslims doing things like um, coming out in support of um, same-sex marriage and that type of thing. And, and you kind of see the impulse is sort of like we want to be accepted, we want to be seen as that we're not, um, you know, fanatics or whatever. So I wanted to ask you, um, there, there seems to be like this um, – absence of scholars and people of knowledge here in America coming out and saying, you know, yo, hold up, you know, I mean, you, you guys are just, um, you guys are just going too far with this. As you said, we're going to lose our kids if we, if these are the kind of positions that we're taking. And even if, even if you guys are taking the, these positions for like Machiavellian reasons for pleasing this group or that group, well, you know, your kids are not going to take it as Machiavellian. They're going to ah, take it as, exactly. yeah. yeah. So could, could but, we, could, could we get more People of knowledge like yourself, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but uh, people like Suhaib Webb, people like Yadash Rikaldi to come out and say, hey, can we just uh, sort of uh, take a step back and, and look and see where we're going with all this and where is this headed? Well, two things. Number one, when a movement, when a movement gets started, uh, it's very difficult to stop it. You, you can't, you know. Um, uh, the I'm, I'm forgetting one of the Sahaba when they were dealing with like a lot of the the infighting going on between the Sahaba during that, that tough period um, with Ali um, one of the Sahaba said that you know uh, there's a line of poetry that said that you know when war starts it looks it looks appealing to every jahul every ignoramus thinks that you know war is, is great so when when you see progressives moving in this direction they actually start to believe like we're we're gaining momentum and once they begin to gain momentum and they go too far, the shaitan get them to cross the line, 
it's hard to turn that back. You you can't turn that back. You understand what I'm saying? Like, you know, you look at the momentum that that the Khawarij were able to gain around, uh, you know, Uthman, the killing of Uthman, and then, of course, then the, you know, murder of Ali, there was no stopping that. And this is why, you know, as Muslims, we try to be, you know, proactive from the very beginning when we see things going in a certain direction we try to curtail it we try to because once the momentum once shaitan gets you going it's it's not going to stop so this whole idea of progressive islam and standing in solidarity with the lgbt community staying standing in solidarity with this community or that community and trying to hold hands with everybody to be accepted um it what ends up happening is that now when people like myself or anyone else says something contrary to that we now become the enemies. You understand? We now become the the enemies, and it, it, there is no, there's, you know, as uh, Prophet Luke said to the people, Rashid, isn't there a sound thinking individual from amongst you? There's, is there anyone with any basic common sense amongst you to say, hey, listen, we've gone too far with this? They, they, they can't. They're not going to turn back. And they're not going to listen to anyone else that goes against them. They're going to actually make you, uh, you know, they're going to actually make you an adversary. So that's one thing. The other thing is that um, they have monopolized these platforms. So people like myself, any graduate from the Islamic University gets no airplay here yeah. in America unless he creates a platform for himself. I, by the permission of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, would not even have a voice as Shadi Muhammad, which many people on that platform don't even know that I exist. You understand? Because they monopolize the platforms. You know, I know there's another brother who was very cool with Yasser Qadi, and um, he wanted to become one of the instructors at um, Al-Maghrib. And so he was explaining to me the rigorous process that you had to go through to become an instructor. He said, and at the end, without saying the name of the person, he said, at the end, the brother who was going to bring me on basically said to me, like, you're not cut out to be an instructor for our mother. And he said, well, why? I'm a graduate from the university. We were cool in the university. Well, I mean, like, what, what's the problem? It's like, you, you just don't, you don't, you don't have the look. You don't have the look. Like, you don't have it. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, and that's basically what he said. And he was like, you know, I realized at that point that a lot of these brothers, they don't want Islam. They're not advocating for traditional Islam. They're not advocating for Islam. They're advocating for, you know, something totally different. And they, they, use, they use Islam as the blanket. They throw the blanket over top of it. But, you know, in reality, it's not Islam that they're advocating for. So myself, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't work with any organization or any group like that. Matter of fact, it's not even a question because uh, once they see what I stand for, what I represent, they're not going to want to affiliate with me anyway. I would destroy their brand. You understand? We we have Muslims that are now concerned about branding themselves. You understand? So they won't attend a lecture if somebody like myself is there. They won't attend a conference if someone like my because they can't be seen with somebody like me. They can't be seen with somebody like you know, this person or that person. And I mean, like, this happens. And this is, of course, I mean, like, I don't I don't disrespect that. That's you and your trajectory. If you feel like this is going to make you successful, then go along with it. Because at the end of the day, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one that is in control of everything. Yeah, and if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sees fit for you to have a platform to spread information that is contrary to Islam, then Allah is giving you that as a test for you and as a test for the people that are around you. 
And if Allah doesn't give you that, then Allah saw fit. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, the whole idea of would you work with this group or would you work with that group? That's that's not for me necessarily to answer because I'm a minority. I'm I'm no one. It would be for them to answer or respond to that. Ask al-Maghrib why haven't they, you know, diversified many of their, you know, many of their instructors. Ask al-Bayyina Institute why haven't they diversified. Ask, you know, ICNA and ISNA and all of these, you know, multi-million dollar, billion dollar org Islamic organizations, why haven't they diversified their scholar lists? You know, ICNA, they hold a, a conference, huge conference for three days in Baltimore, Maryland. Right. And they have a whole list of 21 scholars and every single one of them between Paki and Arab, mm. not one African-American. You got your Siraj Wahaj, but he's not coming to talk. He's coming to do fundraising. fundraising. You understand what I'm saying? That's that's all we're good for. You know, and you can't tell me that, you know, not necessarily Shadi Muhammad, but from amongst my peers, I'm probably one of the few African-American graduates from the Islamic University who has this level of platform. I have over 20,000 followers on Periscope. I have close to 12, 13,000 followers between all of my Facebook pages and my Instagram page. And you know what I mean? Like you don't really have a lot of students and knowledge that have that level of influence, that have that platform. And it took me years to get to that point. And even along with that, you'll find that it's still not as broad and not as accepting as somebody like, you know, Norman Ali Khan. I don't know about now, but <laughs> before his mishap, you know, before his mishap. And to be honest with you, I, I was kind of tempted to kind of jump in there, not necessarily to defend him, but to defend the, 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 the sense of entitlement that many of these sisters have. And I spoke about that at the conference, that they will email you and text you and they'll engage you you know, on this level that they know it's haram to even email you, but they'll do it anyway. And then when everything goes haywire, you're now somehow the only one responsible because you are the sheikh, you are the imam, you know better. But it's a <laughs> sense of entitlement. No, wallahi, I kid you not, man. I kid you not. On the same on the same Facebook page, I can scroll, I could have scrolled down at least four names down and showed you messages that were sent to me from sisters on my Facebook page. I don't even respond to them. I mean, like, it's it's... You know what I mean? Like, you're not going to, you got to come better than that. Like, <laughs> I've been in the game longer than that, man. Like, if you caught me fresh out of the university, yeah, you might have got that all. You know what I mean? 15 years into the game, man. Like, come on, man. Like, you got to shoot game better than that. Man. Like, hi, how you doing, brother? Mashallah, I was so inspired by your lecture. It's like, all right, so you want to marry everybody that inspired you, right? Like, yeah. Man, yeah, it, it, it's like the when you when you get a suburban Daisy kid that never got girls growing up, it's a different story. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. I mean, and you know, like you know, in looking at him, I mean, you can tell like he's, he's, <laughs> he's, not, he's not been that guy. You know, he wasn't that guy in high school. You know what I mean? He wasn't the heartthrob. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like he didn't have that. So you know, you having women inboxing you and things like that. Yeah, you know what I mean? And there should be a PR. What a lot of emails when they reach that that particular status. Even me myself, my Facebook page. My wives, they they are on the page as well. They post it, and I do that purposely to protect me because I know that they have access to these things. So I'm not going to respond because I know my wife saw it. I know she's looking at it. You understand what I'm saying? <laughs> they have access to pretty much everything social media related to me. They have access to everything, and I do that purposely. Number one, to protect me, and number two, 
to sometimes put the sisters in check because sometimes my wife might jump on and text the sister back like, yo, you know you dead wrong for even texting him this and this is his wife and blah, blah, blah. And then Kalas, she deletes her page, never hear from her again, whatever the case may be. But it's sad. It's sad that he's being, you know, dealt with like this and all of the blame is on him. And there was times that, you know, I'm one of them guys, like, I have a high sense of justice. You know, I don't like seeing people being taken advantage of. That bothers me. And there, although there were times when I kind of wanted to just jump out there and, you know, not necessarily defend him, because there are tons of imams that are victims of that. They, we're, we're never looked at as the victim. We're looked at as the perpetrator. We're looked at as the, the perp. You know, and the woman, she can kind of get away with it because it's like, oh, well, you're the imam. You should know better. But you're a Muslim. You should know better as well. Why is he taking the whole rap for this? And you get to go on Facebook and expose all of your conversations that you screenshot it and, you know, and post that. And everybody's supposed to sympathize with you. And then he's looked at as the, the, the big bad wolf. And it's not fair. It's not fair. And the reason why I didn't jump out there is that because he don't give a damn about our community. He never spoke out against any of the issues related to our community, never came, never offered his courses or anything to any of the, you know, inner city African-American. He don't give a damn about our community. So why should I? I'm not doing that. No, nah, you on your own, buddy. Figure that out. You know what I mean? <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not. And somebody can say, "Well, you know, that's that's petty, that's tit for tat." I mean, call it what you want, but I'm sorry, I, I'm not gonna advocate. Like, you don't give a damn about African and poor, African American. And I mean, like ICNA, they hold this three day event. You know, um, I had the pleasure of going to the last year's event because I was going to sell some books there, and I just I saw the venue, man, like Muslims everywhere downtown Baltimore, and. Baltimore, one of the poorest cities in America. And after the three-day event is over, they clean up, they pack up, they collect their money, and they keep it moving. They never drop a dime on any of those poor African-American Muslim communities in the city of Baltimore. Yeah. Nothing. And you come to their city for three days, hold an event, host an event, you know, not, no consideration for any of the imams in Baltimore and Maryland, none. They're, they're non-factors. And you collect millions and millions and millions of dollars and donations and, you know, registration fees and all of this other stuff. You pack up, you leave, and you don't go to these communities and say, hey, you know, I know you guys are struggling. Here's $5,000, you know, to help with your water bill. Here's $1,000. Nothing. Nothing. And I mean, where is that okay? Where is that acceptable? When is it that the prophet – I mean, like, even when he migrated to Medina – and his camel sat in that place, which we know now today as Masjid al-Nabawi. That spot, that pl- plot of land belonged to two orphans. And the two orphans wanted to give it to the Prophet Sallallahu He said, no, this is a man of integrity. No, give me a price and I'll pay for it. You know what I'm saying? No, I'm not going to take anything for free. We, he purchased that plot of land that we know today as Masjid al-Nabawi. This is a man of integrity. You go into an environment, you know there's struggling Muslims there, struggling Muslim communities. You never offer any courses, any free courses, nothing. Where's your, where's the how do where do you give back? Uh, I'm really trying to figure it out. We collect money for Burma, we collect money for Rohingya, we collect money for Yemen. We don't collect money for Baltimore, Maryland. We don't collect money for all of these poor Islamic Muslim communities that are like on their last leg. 
but you're going to collect money for, you know, and we don't even know if the money is actually reaching these people. These organizations, these Islamic organizations, they jump right on the bandwagon. Soon as there's a disaster, uh, um, something catastrophic happens to this particular place, or that, then now we become advocates. We want to collect money for this. Per we don't even know if the money reaches that place. And then the thing is, is that why do you wait until, uh, um, you know, this this mishap happens here, this this calamity happens here? You got calamities happening all over right here. Don't you realize that a young sister, African-American sister, just committed suicide in Maryland mm -hmm. just last week? I mean, you know, due to some what I'm hearing, due to some racial, you know, biases that go on in, in the school system there, the Islamic school system there. I was just in Maryland Friday. I gave the khutbah there. And I'm, I'm you know, somebody sent a, a message on my Facebook page. It was like, you know, you need to bring up the issue of the young girl who committed suicide. That was the first I heard about it. So I figured while I was there in Maryland, why don't I bring up the discussion? And after my lecture was over, I'm asking the brothers, like, please let me in. Like, what happened? And man, subhanAllah, man. You know what I mean? It's, it's sad. And we don't where, say anything. Where was that? At um, Dar es Salaam, um, Al-Huda School? Or? No, I no, think it was in Maryland. Al-Huda was um, another smaller school. I'm, I'm forgetting the name of it. Okay. All right. Well, Imam Shadid, uh, I know you got to run. Um, we still got a lot to talk to you about. So, inshallah, <laughs> we'll uh, bring you on soon again. Um, you know oh, what I mean? Really enjoyed this conversation. Man. How can our listeners, uh, you know, find out more about you? Um, you know, as you mentioned, so you mentioned you kind of got create your own platform. Alhamdulillah, with Allah's fadl, we've, uh, you know, grown quite quickly in the last year and a half since we've been doing podcasts. Um, so your, your platform, our platform is your platform. That's right. MashaAllah. Yeah. You know, you're going to be at the, you're going to be at the conference as well right no i actually uh i tapped out of that one um no. for a number for a number of reasons okay. <laughs> one was because uh the brother who sent me the initial offer you know uh, didn't offer to pay me anything and i'm sorry i don't fly off of and, and that's another thing like why would you why would you even feel comfortable because I'm I'm nobody. I'm I basically you're doing me a favor. I was offended. Like I didn't even respond to the email right away because I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> like yo, like how do you how do you even come out the side of your face and say, okay, well we're gonna pay for your hotel and your flight, but you know we, we ask for compensation maybe next time, you know, and and I'm like. <laughs> I don't even need your platform though, dude. Like you like you're not doing me a favor. Like, you know what I mean? With all due respect, I appreciate the invite, but uh, you know what I mean? Like, would you have asked yes, Sakadi, would you have asked Hemza Yusuf to, to come to Texas for free? I mean, I these guys get paid. You know, I I'm not even gonna tell I'm, you don't want me to put this stuff on class. <laughs> like, these guys get paid in the tens of thousands, man, to show up and do, you know, an one hour lecture, you know what I'm saying, a one day event. You understand what I'm saying? And like me, like, yeah, I'm nobody and that's cool. But at the same token, I still have, you know, I still have my platform so that I'm not really in need of. I'm not really in need of that. So that was, I, I you know, responded back and I said, you know, with all due respect, I, I appreciate it. And I said, you know, may Allah reward you. And, and that was pretty much it. And I tried to be as respectful as I possibly could under those circumstances. I, I, I'm aware of that, you know, those honorariums, because there's a masjid that I, I, work with locally that they're not the richest masjid around but they wanted to invite one of these big dogs and i was like you know that's gonna be like ten thousand bucks right, right. <laughs> you know what i mean for a 45 minute talk your community is gonna lose their mind if they find out that you spent 10 grand on a, on a 45 minute speech right. and y'all can't even afford air conditioning right <laughs> and and i've seen it even right here in delaware we just had yasso coffee was just here about three weeks ago 
And while they come to me and they say, Brother Shadid, can you give the, are you free today? Can you give the chutzpah today? And there's no discussion of money. I'm almost positive Yasser did not come here. With all due respect to him, he's a businessman and I respect that. But I'm almost positive he didn't come here and do that for free. But you'll ask me, because I live right around the corner from the masjid, you know, uh, oh, Brother Shadid, can you give the chutzpah tomorrow? And I'm like, no, <laughs> like my, I'm not just free walking around. You know, I don't have nothing to do on Friday, right? You know what I mean? Like, right. <laughs> I don't travel around the world, you know, on Friday. Who, who am I? You know, what was I thinking? You know, but I'm sure, yes, yeah, Akadi didn't come here for the one night, and this was on a Sunday night. School is the very next day. I stopped in to just give him salams, but I got there. At, he had just started when I got there, so I was a little late. And um, it was a packed house. <laughs> Packed house. They did it at a, a, a non-public a public school auditorium. Packed house on a Sunday night, man. Mashallah. And I'm sure they they paid some thousands of dollars for that to happen. You know what I mean? But you'll you'll reach out to me and say, well, you know, as for an honorarium, we can't give you one. I mean, like how? I mean, like you didn't even say, you know, we got a couple of hundred dollars. You know, we're small this or small that, and we can. It's like you just. Send me an email. We can play, pay for your flight and we can, you know, and then to put all of these stipulations in the contract, we get to keep the recording and we're able to sell it and do it as we wish. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh, my God, Dot, black dies matter. Right. Yeah, we, 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 we got some work to do for sure on that end, for sure. Like, I, I know there's a lot of students of knowledge matter. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was it was, you know, just no, I, I just number one, um, I, I kind of like I toyed with the idea. Do do I even really need that platform? You know, is it even worth it? You know, because I, I personally I hate traveling, man. The whole hotel, get there, drop your bags off, and like, and then you get home, you're you're, you're missing your kids, and you FaceTiming your family. I I, I really I, I dread that honestly. I mean, when I first started back in two thousand and four, two thousand five, traveling around, I loved it. I enjoyed it. I looked forward to it. At this point, when I get someone that's a, a email that come in, actually, when we first started, I was responding to an email for an event in September. You understand? And I'm, I'm just like, all right, can we do this in one day so I can get back home? Like, I hate being gone for three days. We have New Jersey Dawa conference that's coming up. Mashallah, shout out to New Jersey Dawa and Jadawa uh, conference that's coming up this weekend. You know, and it's mashallah, it's a packed house every time in New Jersey. And, um, after the three days, man, I'm just exhausted, not physical, just mentally. I'm just drained, you know, and, you know, that takes a toll on you over the years. I've been doing this since 2004, traveling around giving Daoists, now going into 2018. I'm, you know, I'm tired, you know what I'm saying? I'm tired. So I didn't, I didn't reject, decline the offer, you know, simply based upon the money. I also looked at, course. do I really need this? Do I do I really need this at this point in my life at this time at this particular time? But they are like to just say, hey, we don't have an honorarium, and you know maybe no. next time. But present the way you present yourself. It's not it's not that I do what I do for money. But number one, I'm a businessman. I'm an okay. entrepreneur. This is how I feed my family. This is how I sustain my life. Not only that, um, I do have charitable things that I do. You know what I mean? But let me decide when I want to to do something for charity you don't decide that for me i decide that i decide hey you know if you would have said you know we're a small community we don't really have a lot of money what is your honorarium what would you know and i would have responded back well you know if you could do this then that would be great if not don't worry about it i'll still come for free i decided that 
you don't decide that for me. You understand what I'm saying? Like, if I'm going to give sadaqah and I'm going to do something then let me decide when I do that. You don't force my hand to do that by telling me you're not going to give me this or that. Sheikh, we want, to, we, we want to thank you for coming on. And uh, let me say, and maybe the brother has something else to say, but I just wanted to say that um, how deeply needed it is that we have someone come and hold a mirror up to our faces and to say, this is what you are. And I just want to say for myself, for uh, for having the the courage and the adab, the beautiful manners in advising us um, for that. Yeah, I, I like the second Ismail stunt as well. And like, what's what's the best way for people to like find out about you on social media? I assume it's just Imam. I know you've got the Rauda, R A W D A H. Yes, um, Rauda.info is the email address. I mean, the uh, the website. Um, you can also find me on Facebook, uh, Shadid Muhammad slash Rauda uh, admin. Um, and then I have another Facebook page, Rauda, um, just Rauda. Um, and then um, my Instagram page, uh, Twitter page, Shadid underscore M76. There's a couple of pages that have been created recently that weren't created by me. There were other people who created these pages and they called it Shadid and they're just tweeting out all types of crazy stuff. <laughs> um, my official, like it's like almost like you're a celebrity. So you got to say the official Shadid <laughs> page, right? So I, my page that I tweet from is Shadid underscore M76. Yeah. Uh, my Periscope, you know, I mean, uh, Periscope is the same handle as the Twitter handle and uh, SoundCloud, which is where I upload pretty much all of my audios onto SoundCloud. And you just go to Shidi Muhammad on SoundCloud. Yeah, and, and I do recommend everyone listen to the Reclaiming Our Communities was a Facebook live video. Um, I, I wish it was longer. <laughs> Three hours went by quick. <laughs> You know what I mean? I had it streaming on my phone while I was driving on my dashboard, so I could. The main thing you could you could listen to it. So um, it's actually I uploaded it to YouTube too. You okay. can go to my YouTube page. My personal YouTube page is www.rolda r a w d a h. That's one word. www.rolda on on the that's my YouTube channel. Or anything else that is posted on YouTube under Shadid Muhammad was posted by somebody else. Every video that is under www.rova i post it myself anything else that's up there um somebody else posted i'm not responsible for that all right. well, we can put some links uh, we can put some links on the mad mamluks page correct uh yeah we yes can. what yeah. i can do is we're done I, I can go to um your whatsapp and i'll send you a couple of the links uh, on your whatsapp and you can post those yeah inshallah. yeah be, absolutely we'll have it all in the show notes inshallah uh for our listeners out there if you have any questions or comments you can email us at the Mad Looks at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the Mad Looks. We're also on Facebook. Uh, give us a Facebook like. Follow us on Twitter. Um, for our special guest, uh, Imam Shadid Muhammad, and for my co host, uh, Ismail Royer, this is Mahin signing off for the Mad Looks. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.